Go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 14. No one has ever accused me of being eloquent, but I appreciate the prayer anyway. Um, Genesis 14, I know it's at stake, so I'm going to be efficient, but man, I am very uh, excited about our text tonight, getting into Genesis chapter 14. So we're going to go to work. Um, I'm going to do a quick recap, just briefly. You know, we've moved into this section that is primarily focused on the life of Abraham. What we've already seen so much is the, the promises made to Abraham, this covenant made with Abraham, and his faithful and faith-filled response to the Lord. And there's been highs and lows, and there's been huge bumps in the road, but ultimately he's demonstrated his faith by his obedience. So to remind you from chapter 12, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And we know with gospel hindsight that that includes us ultimately through the person and work of Jesus. And Hebrews chapter 11 rem re remembers this moment when Abraham gets this first command and promise and he simply obeys. This is how Hebrews 11 remembers that in, in giving a defense for saving faith. It says in 11.8, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place that he was to receive as an inheritance and he went out not knowing where he was going. So we've seen that, yeah, Abraham is held up as the father of faith, okay? In chapter 13, God reaffirms and then makes even more specific and broadens that promise to Abraham, where in, let's see, verse 14, Yahweh said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from, from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever I will make and here it is and I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth your offspring also can be counted arise walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I will give it to you so he's had these incredible promises and Again, we saw, man, where he, he messed up in Egypt. He messed up when the famine came, when, when he was fearful that there wouldn't be enough. And he goes into Egypt, he makes mistakes, but God still carries him through. And ultimately, we see his faithfulness. And we get to chapter 14. So I'm going to go ahead and read the entire chapter, and then we'll work through it. I really wanted to make this our responsive reading tonight. <laughs> Just so... I wouldn't be the only one. All right. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariot, king of Elisar, Ketelamer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemabir, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea, or we know that the Dead Sea. Twelve years 
they had served Ketelamer. But in the 13th year, they rebelled. In the 14th year, Ketelamer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Asheroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, and the Eam in Sheva Karathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zorah, went out and they joined the battle in the valley of Siddim with Ketelamer, king of Elam, once was it enough. <laughs> Ketelamer, king of Elam, title king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled into the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Ketelamer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to Yahweh, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. Pray with me one more time. Lord Jesus, again, we come before you and just ask that you would be exalted, that you be glorified, that we would have ears to hear your word, God, I pray right now for somebody who has become dull of hearing that by your grace and by your spirit, you would open their ears, Lord, and break down any hardness of heart that would, that would keep us from allowing your spirit to work in us. I pray that you would draw us to yourself. I pray this would be encouragement, an encouragement for your church that you would draw lost people to yourself for salvation. In Christ's name, amen. 
So again, we know that when this story starts, Lot had gone, Abram's nephew has gone to live in Sodom, okay? So tonight, in this passage, we're going to see how, we'll see how this plays out, um, but we're also going to, we're going to meet a character who is one of, if not the most mysterious individuals in the Bible, and we're going we're gonna to see what the scripture has to say about him. But ultimately tonight, what we're going to see through this passage and the scriptures that support it is that, that we would see more clearly and comprehend more deeply who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And maybe tonight we will get to see that in a unique way. That's the main point of our passage tonight is to see Jesus more clearly so we can obey him and worship him more passionately. So, the battle of the nine armies. We got all these, all these kings. What's going on here is the kings, these city-states down around where Abram is living, you know, close to Jerusalem. Uh, Abram's living on really the, the west side of the Dead Sea, of the Salt Sea, and you've got all these city-states that kind of surround it, and all these city-states, these little kingdoms, have been paying tribute to Ketelamur for years, for 12 years. Well, on the 13th year, they decide, you know what? Man, if we're all in this together, we're done. We're done paying him anything, and they stop. So the 13th year goes by, and the next year, Ketelamur goes, okay, guys, and all the folks around him, they mount up, and they're going to make their way to, to bring them back into subjection. And, and, the, and the idea is that um, most likely what is so valuable here is that when they're sending tribute is that it was a copper-rich area. And so uh, in, in, the, in that area, in the ancient Near East, uh, that was a rare commodity, but it's what they were making their tools and their weapons out of. So they're very motivated to make their way down there to, to bring them back into subjection so that they can pay that tribute. And so they make their way down, and it's fascinating if you want to look at maps and, and, and probably where they came down, and, and on their way, they're just taking out more people, um, and they come through, and they, and they sack all these city-states, like the Rams defensive line, and they just come ar- Stay focused. Stay focused. Here we go. Uh, and, and, and they're taken over, and then they come up, and, and, and they do. They, they dominate. And, and it says, man, the king of Sodom and some of the other kings, that they run away. It says they fall into the, the tar pits. Um, and that the, what can be translated fell could also be translated that they lowered themselves in. So it's possible that they go in to hide. Um, but it's also possible that they fell in and the end. Um, but anyway, so they, they sack these cities and they come up and they take, they're taking all their goods, all their possessions, their women, and Lot gets swept up in this. And so now they, they probably come down the east side of the Dead Sea and now they're coming around the west side, but they bypass Mamre and Salem, and, which becomes Jerusalem, and, they, and they're headed back home. Um, and somebody comes and makes Abram aware of what's happened and so he mounts up with his 318 trained soldiers, like his detail, his personal detail, and then all the little city-states that he has an alliance with, they go together and they travel some, somewhere around 150 miles to catch up to this caravan of, of 
this axis of power that came down to, to sack these cities. And so they catch up, and Abram divides his forces, and they take him out, and he's victorious. And they, they bring all the people back, all the possessions, all the women that were taken captive, and Lot included, and, and they're coming back home. And there's this huge celebration. And again, I mean, go read more about it, but, but the battle, even though it's the first battle we see in the Bible, the battle's not the main point. The battle is the stage on which we're gonna get to meet this mysterious character. But I, I did stop and think about, man, it's an awesome scene. You have Abram coming back in victory, right? Which, I mean, he is not a young guy by our standards. And I do think there's different standards at that time. But he's not a young man. But he goes and then he's coming back and he's bloodied and he's dirty. And I see him at the, at the head of this caravan of soldiers for hire. <laughs> and, then, and then those who, have been, who were taken captive and now have been released and freed, are coming back with him into the land. No doubt, huge celebration. Huge celebration. And I I just had to stop and and think that as a believer, that as a believer, as a Christian, you know, there's a slim chance that any of us would have to do this for someone that we care about physically, right? It's probably a slim chance that I'll ever have to rescue a family member or a friend or a member of Red Oak physically from being taken captive. But for all of us, there absolutely will be people that you care about, family members, members at Red Oak, people that you work with that have been taken captive spiritually. And we'll be called to go after them. And I just, just in my own, just pausing before the Lord, I wrote this down. Sometimes it'll be a situation where that person has put themselves in that situation. And sometimes it'll be because they're the victim of somebody else's sin, that they've been taken captive spiritually. Sometimes when you go after them, they'll hear you. They'll respond to the warning. They'll respond to the encouragement. They'll respond to your ministry. And they'll return home and you'll see them healed. Sometimes they'll choose to remain in captivity. Sometimes they'll just walk further away from Jesus. Sometimes they may hate you for even trying to rescue them. We know we'll always be blessed for our obedience and we can trust the work of the Lord, even the work that we don't see or fully comprehend in somebody else's life. As I pictured Abraham, man, awesome victory physically. I couldn't help but to think, man, there's so, so many stories in our church, just our church alone, where this has taken place. And we've seen all different kind of results. But absolutely, we'll be called to go rescue people Ultimately, this is what Jesus did for us. This is what Jesus did for us. We were taken captive in sin to the enemy, and yeah, Jesus came and he rescued us. He led captivity captive. So they come back, and we have this meeting. These these two kings come out and meet Abram. And one of them is the king of Sodom, 
and one of them is the king of Salem. And this gets set up by Moses, by the Holy Spirit through Moses, to really contrast these two kings. And I don't know if this is Bera, the, the king of Sodom, who maybe hid in a pit for a while, and then when Abram rides out to go be victorious, he climbs out, maybe the same guy, or maybe this is whoever takes his place if he died. It doesn't really matter. But listen to this. The meeting with the two kings, this is from uh, Ross. The meeting with the two kings is set out in a contrast. In this sequence, we have the king of Sodom going out and the king of Salem bringing out. The king of Salem blessing and the king of Sodom bartering. The central thrust of the story is clearly the action and speech of Melchizedek. It separates the action and the speech of the king of Sodom. Abram was far more prepared to resist the offer from Sodom after receiving the blessing of Mel. Melchizedek, sorry. I call him Mel in my notes because I don't know how to spell Melchizedek. All right. The king of Sodom tries to give payment to Abraham, who I also call Abe. <laughs> it helps when you're typing, not when you're reading. Uh, tries to give a payment to Abraham, possibly to bring him into an alliance that would compromise Abram. Abram will share his allegiance with no one. That's what we see. Abraham swore he would not enter into an ungodly alliance with Sodom choosing rather to trust the promise of God over the riches of the world. Dale Ralph Davis said it this way, Abram rejects Sodom and its gifts for the bread and wine of Salem offered by Melchizedek, which I'm gonna read this again because it's been a minute. For the Christian, when we meet Melchizedek, everything about him screams that he is at, at minimum foreshadowing Christ. After his return from the defeat of Ketelamur and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So you have this, this king, Melchizedek, coming from Salem, which eventually would become Jerusalem. And he's bringing out bread and wine to refresh Abraham, right? As believers, again, with gospel hindsight, we should already start to know where this is going, but be before, we, before we get there, we gotta back up and realize, okay, for the Israelites, this guy is, from the beginning, he was just so mysterious. Who is he? Who is this king priest who knows Yahweh, who knows the Lord, who's serving the Lord? The priesthood hasn't even been established yet. Israel's priesthood, it doesn't exist yet. Abram's been called out. He's the father of Israel. He's the patriarch. Who is this guy? How does he know God? 
And who is this guy that so clearly is superior to Abraham? What the writer of Hebrews will tell us is that, yeah, it's obvious that he's superior because Abram pays a tithe to him. And Melchizedek blesses Abram, putting him in this superior position. Who is this man? So over the years, people would say, well, maybe, maybe this is actually um, an angel in human guise, in human form, or maybe this is Enoch, or maybe this is Shem. And there's this, all this mystery that surrounds him. And so you fast forward, you have this scene, and you fast forward, right? And Abraham has Isaac, and Isaac has Jacob. If you haven't read, sorry for the spoiler. He's going to have a kid. And then he has the 12. Joseph's one of them. And they go into Egypt and eventually into slavery. And then God raises up Moses, who's writing this by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the inspiration of the Spirit of God. And Moses is used to lead the children of Israel now that this huge part of the promise is true, like they are a nation. And he brings them out of slavery and he's taking them back to this promised land where Abram right now is just camping out. And he's gonna bring them into the land. But before he does that, he stops and he gives them the, the law. He gives them the law. And while he's giving them the law, he sets up, he, he takes Moses up on the mountain and, and he shows him, somehow shows him, Abram, or Moses is able to see into this heavenly reality. And he's told, what you're gonna do is you're gonna make a sanctuary just like the pattern I showed you in heaven. And, and, Ab- and Moses gets the pattern for what would be the tabernacle and eventually the temple, and this would be the center of worship for the Israelites. And then God establishes a priesthood that it wasn't just anybody who could serve the Lord in the tabernacle or the temple. There, there was one tribe, the tribe of Levi, that could serve the temple, that they could draw a little bit closer to the Lord. And then the family of Aaron could serve even closer and that, that, that the high priest would come from that family. And, and I wanna pause here. I think I already paused. It's a pause within a pause. Because I, I want us to see, I want us to get the picture. Because we're, we're about to go to, there's only two places outside of Genesis where Melchizedek is mentioned. Psalm 110, and it's a messianic psalm, which means that God was promising through David that, yeah, one day there will be this king who comes and his reign will never end. Because God had promised David that. That the, that the throne would never leave his family, that it would never leave the tribe of Judah, specifically of David's line. And in that messianic psalm, it says this, talking about the Messiah, the king to come. David says, uh, let me read it so I don't mess it up. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, the Messiah, are a priest forever. This king who will sit on the throne forever, Yahweh, the Lord, is swearing, is making an oath and saying of the Messiah this, 
you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the Jews didn't know what to do with that. They didn't know what to do with this. Is this two different people in this same psalm? Do we have a, a king who will serve as king forever? And will we have a priest who will serve as priest forever? What's going on? Because when God set up the priesthood, it was very clear what he was doing. God in his grace was drawing near to his people. But when you examine their religion, it is still all about degrees of separation that were necessary because God is holy and we're sinful. That's how all this started, right? Was we fell. Why is he starting with Abram? Well, it's because all of humanity fell away from God. We're his enemies. We've broken fellowship. We're not being the people that he created us to be. And so God in his grace is drawing near to humanity through this one nation, Israel. So all the other nations of the world are still kept at a great distance because of their sinfulness and God's holiness. But God's making provision. And so this one nation can come closer to God. And then out of that nation, made up of 12 tribes, one tribe could come a little bit closer, the tribe of Levi. And then out of that tribe, that one family could come even closer and serve as, as priests making sacrifices. So the temple or the, the tabernacle was set up so there was a holy place and there's these thick curtains that are separating everything. And the priest could enter in to the holy place and day after day after day they could make sacrifices. They could kill lambs, they could kill bulls, they could burn animals and offer incense all for the worship of the Lord and to, to make some sort of covering for the unintentional sins of the people. All day. Every day, that's all they did. And then one special day was set apart, the Day of Atonement, where the high priest, one man, could go one time a year through the second set of curtains called the Holy of Holies. Because in the Holy of Holies is where God's manifest presence, his Shekinah glory, would dwell. That God dwelt in the Holy of Holies. And all that was in there, ultimately what was in there is the Ark of the Covenant. This box that's covered in gold. The, the top of it called the mercy seat is, a, is this a solid piece of gold. And in the Ark is the, the tablets of the covenant, the law that God had given, Aaron's staff that had budded, and, and some manna. So God, in the Holy of Holies, dwelling above the mer mercy seat, one time a year, the high priest could go in. But he's only going in to offer the blood of animals for the unintentional sins of the people. First for himself, but then for the people. And it's this crazy picture of, man, this is so gracious but of God to draw near to his people, but who wants that job? Who wants to be the high priest? Not me. Aaron didn't want it. Aaron's own two sons went in there and they died because they did something wrong. And then God told Moses to tell Aaron, tell Aaron not to come in to the Holy of Holies at any time, lest he die. And then he sets up the Day of Atonement. Because what, 
what is a, every year as the Day of Atonement would roll around is this very clear reminder that because of God's holiness, we don't belong in his presence. Even those that he's bringing near to himself. So much so that tradition would tell us that when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, when he'd pass through that second set of curtains, they would tie a rope to his ankle because if he thought or said or did something wrong while in there and God struck him dead, are you going to get him? Nope. Like, I'm not even Jewish. Yeah, no, I'm not going in there. Who's signing up? No. I'll drag him out. That's what, that's what tradition teaches us. They didn't belong in there. But year after year, high priest would serve until he died, and then another high priest would take his place. Day after day, animals being killed. And so... You have the mystery, who is this Melchizedek? Who is this one that David says is Messiah and this priest forever? How can he be a priest? If the Messiah is from Judah, how can he be a priest? How can he serve before the Lord? But they also have to deal with this question. Because in that system, we have the law that shows us our guilt and provisions made to make sacrifice, but only for our unintentional sins. I would ask you if you've ever sinned intentionally, but I think I know most of you, and I'm going to assume on the rest of you, that's a problem. So turn to Hebrews chapter 7. The mystery hangs in the air for years. The Holy Spirit, through the writer of Hebrews, is going to use this historic person, this historic figure, of Melchizedek, and he's going to use the mystery surrounding him to give us a very unique understanding of the person and the work of Jesus. I'm starting verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him and said to Abraham... And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, Melchizedek is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He, Melchizedek, is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but, here it is, resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So Melchizedek's a real guy. This isn't an angel. It's not Enoch. It's not Shem. It's not a 
pre-incarnate appearing of Jesus. He's a real guy, but he uses him because of his likeness, both in what is said and what's not said about him to Jesus. Because he says this first. He's first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Melchizedek, king of righteousness. And we know, yeah, that's who Jesus is. He rules with the scepter of uprightness. He rules in complete, total justice. But not just that Jesus will rule with justice, but that he is the king of righteousness in that he shares his righteousness with us. But he's also king of peace. King of peace in that he defeats all of our enemies subdues all enemies, makes a footstool all his enemies, but also a king of peace because he brings us into a right relationship with God. He's able to remove the hostility between us and God. How could our king do that? It says he's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Talking about Melchizedek, so he uses silence here. I think Melchizedek had a belly button. Just my personal opinion, I never saw him. I think he had a belly button joke, sorry. I think he had a mom and dad. But what the writer of Hebrews is doing underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is using what's not said to highlight what we know to be true about Jesus. Because Jesus also had an earthly mother. But we know Jesus is the second person of Trinity. He's Jesus from all of eternity. He exists in perfect relationship with the Father and with the Spirit. He is eternal. He's saying, and pay attention to what he says, Melchizedek resembles Jesus, not the other way around. He's eternal. And that's going to matter a whole lot here in a minute. Doesn't have a beginning. He doesn't have an end. And his priesthood, unlike the priesthood in Israel, unlike the Levitical priesthood, it's not dependent on your ancestry. Let's read on. Y'all with me? Doesn't matter. I'm loving this. All right, here we go. <laughs> see how great a man this See how great this man was to whom Abram, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them receives tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it testifies that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abram, Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So he's saying, he's setting up that Jesus' role as high priest is not only possible, that Jesus could be both our eternal king and our eternal priest because he's not 
of the tribe of Levi, and that's good. He's from an order that is far superior. Far superior. And that is demonstrated when Abraham paid tithes. It's as if Levi was too. It's as if the whole tribe of Levi through Abraham was bowing down, not before Melchizedek, the man, but the man that he resembled, Jesus, the eternal son of God, the great high priest. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Saying this, if the priesthood changes, the whole law is done away with. Not the moral law, but the old covenant, the Old Testament is done away with. They're, they're dependent on one another. Which we know, like when the writer of Hebrews penned this, the temple was most likely still standing, but it's not there today. It's not there. You know who's serving as high priest on a, the Day of Atonement this year? That's right. I'll also use your silence for my answer. Nobody. Nobody. It doesn't exist. You can't be an Old Testament Jew. It doesn't exist. And it doesn't exist for this purpose. It was old. And it was passing away. It was giving way to what is new. <laughs> to what is new. To what is better. To what is far superior. Verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of of an indestructible life. He's eternal, and we know he died, but he rose again. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He said, man, the law couldn't make anyone perfect. That was never the plan. It shows you your sin. And then there's all these pictures, but they are all pointing to something better. And he's saying, man, those priests, everyday servant, everyday servant, never sitting down. All they do is serve all day long, killing animals, killing bulls, killing goats, and the blood of bulls and goats, it cannot take away sin. It was never possible. 
At best, it was just a picture. It set people apart physically to be able to serve. It could never make you perfect. And the writer of Hebrews has one thing in mind when he says make you perfect. Perfect in Hebrews means this, being able to come in and dwell in the presence of God. The law couldn't do it. It couldn't do it for the high priest because he had his own sin. He didn't belong in there. Didn't belong in there. Could not make you perfect. Couldn't cleanse your conscience. Couldn't save you from dead works. Couldn't save you from your sin. Couldn't make propitiation. Couldn't remove God's wrath from you. So if you came into the presence of God, all there would be is the reality that I don't deserve to be here and I should die eternally. And what he wants us to see is that we have a superior high priest. We have a better high priest. And the picture that he paints here and why he uses Melchizedek is so that we would see the work of Jesus in a very unique way. Because he doesn't take us to the cross. He doesn't take us to the cross. He says this about Jesus as our high priest. In chapter two, he's gonna say seven things and I'll move at the same pace I've been moving. In chapter 2, 17 and 18, he says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become, listen, a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. He's merciful and faithful. The high, the high priest in the Levitical system couldn't be both. He could be merciful, he could feel bad, he could want to do something about it, the situation that people were in, but he couldn't be faithful because of his own sin. Jesus can be merciful and faithful because although he was tempted, he never sinned. Chapter four, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus didn't pass through the curtains in the temple. When Jesus lived out his earthly life, he never walked into the temple. They wouldn't have let him. He never walked in to the holy of holies on earth. He didn't pass through those curtains, but what the writer of Hebrews is saying, well, he did something better because he's of the order of Melchizedek. Listen to what Jesus passes through. He passes through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Come on, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. I got this, give me a second. Let us then with confidence draw near to, just thirsty. Let us then with confidence draw near. Do you see it? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. <laughs> that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hmm. How do you do that? He passes through the heavens, not through the curtains on earth, but through the heavens, into the reality, into what God had shown Moses. And, and the writer of Hebrews wants us to see that 
as Jesus is dying on the cross, as God is pouring out his wrath, that there's this drama being played out that we don't, that the people standing there didn't see with their physical eyes. In the moment, Jesus is passing through the heavens and he's going into the holy of holies, into the real presence before the real mercy seat. And he does not bring the blood of bulls and goats. Chapter nine, 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. It's eternal because it's his blood. It's eternal because he has an indestructible life. It's eternal because he serves as our high priest forever. And because of that, he's able to save to the uttermost. Eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, if it sets apart temporary just your body, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see it? He's actually cleansed us. He's actually purified us. He's changed our conscience. Why? He already said it. So that we could draw near to God. So that we would belong. Let me ask you. In the earthly temple, when Jesus is absorbing and satisfying and making propitiation for God's wrath towards us, what happened in the actual Holy of Holies on earth? What happened in the curtain? Torn, top to bottom. That's a crazy incident. I wonder if it had anything. Oh. Jesus, behind the scenes, has gone through the heavens into the presence of the Lord before the real mercy seat with his own blood. And he lays it down in God's wrath is once and for all satisfied the writer of Hebrews knows that Jesus was on the cross and the writer of Hebrews knows that Jesus got up from the dead but he doesn't want us to picture that he wants us to picture Jesus going into the holy of holies laying down that sacrifice of his own blood as a great high priest and not leaving because he belongs and so (laughs) instead of leaving he turns and he sits and the mercy seat that used to just be the barrier between the law that we've broken that demands justice now becomes the throne. The throne of grace. <laughs> On the inside, I'm yelling and it's authoritative and it's just like passion. You guys are like, yeah, I know on the outside, it's like, what's really happening behind the scene? Pay attention to that, Rob, not the I can't get a dang sentence out, Rob. Okay. It becomes the throne of grace. L- listen to this. From chapter one, verse three, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Chapter six, 19 through 20. We, 
We have this as a sure, steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The anchor of our soul. Do you see it? Jesus is tethered off, not with a rope, but with a chain. And he's an anchor for our soul so that we don't drift. But that chain is not so that anybody could ever pull him out because Jesus always belongs in there. And he'll sit forever as king and priest. Now the chain is connected to us and it's so that for the rest of your life, Jesus is pulling, I got, he's pulling you in. That's why he's a priest like Melchizedek. He always lives. That's why he's able to save to the uttermost because he always lives to make intercession for us. What does he pray? To save you to the uttermost. What does that mean? What's he praying for? In a word, your perseverance. Your perseverance. His prayers are what are pulling you in every day of your life. Through the ups and downs. <laughs> Just... just like Abraham. You'll finish faithful. You'll finish faithful. You won't ultimately drift. You won't make shipwreck of your faith because Jesus is praying for you and he's drawing you into the presence of God. He's saying, come, come boldly. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the gospel is so good. You're so good. Thank you for giving us this glimpse behind the scenes. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice. God, thank you for this church. Thank you that they put up with my lisping and stammering, that we get to hear your gospel. And I pray that right now that you would bring men and women to repentance and faith, that you'd save souls. I pray for us, Lord, that we would be encouraged to daily come into your presence and receive the grace and mercy that you have for us. God, I pray that it would encourage us to know that you pray for us, that you love us, that you've saved us, that you pray for us. I pray that we'd be faithful with this message. I pray now that you receive the worship that you alone are worthy of. In Christ's name, amen.